Evidence and answers. Does the belief in God hinder the progress of science? Are arguments for intelligent design simply false reasoning known as God of the gaps arguments? Is the belief in God actually beneficial to the progress of science? Most scientists believe Christianity and a belief in God has hindered the progress of science. But is this really the case? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message comes from this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Our theme was Science and Christianity, Enemies or Allies. And one of our featured speakers was Dr. Paul Nelson, who spoke on the topic, Setting Science Free from Materialism. Let's join Paul Nelson in part two of his study as he explains the proper approach to science and why science should not be so opposed to the idea of an intelligent creator. So, this distinction between what a mind can do and what an undirected physical cause can do is very deep in human understanding. It goes back well before Christianity. You can find Greek philosophers arguing about it. Hundreds of years before Jesus, Greek philosophers were arguing, is the world better explained by a mind or by physics? So it doesn't belong to our particular religious viewpoint. It actually belongs to all of humanity. And so I say to the skeptic, intelligent design is just using this notion of mind to understand the world. It's not that spooky. But he says, I'm not persuaded. I'm not persuaded, Paul. So I say, all right, let's play a game show. Let's go to a Hollywood set and a game show, and behind this door is a puzzle, right? Behind this door is a puzzle, and we want to understand how it came to be. We want to look at the cause that brought that effect into existence. And you have two choices. After all, it's a game show, right? Make it interesting. You can have box one, and inside box one are solutions of type X, thousands of them in little envelopes. All right, so you pop the lid on box one, you take out one of these envelopes and open it, and all the solutions are of the same form. I mean, they're different depending on the context, but they all have the same kind of cause involved. All right, so you can have box one, or you can have box two. Now, the great thing about box two is if there is a solution in box one, a type X solution, you also get it in box two. So any explanation that's up here, you're going to get in box two, plus you get the type Y solutions. Now, is there anybody in this room who would take box one over box two? Just from the way I've described it so far. No, you're going to take box two every time because you've got more horsepower. You've got more options here. You're not losing anything. In fact, you're gaining these kinds of answers, which you may need depending on what the puzzle is behind that door. So just as I've described it, the rational thing to do is to say, I'll take that box because it's got more options. All right, so let's look at some real-life puzzles. Anybody recognize that? Who said quartz? Have you studied mineralogy? How did you know that just like that? Yeah, that's quartz. It's a beautiful crystal. It has a particular hexagonal prism geometry. The chemical formula is SiO2. You can grow it. I can give you the recipe for quartz. In fact, watch manufacturers grow great big vats of quartz crystals because if you put an electrical current through quartz, it oscillates with a very high frequency that you can step down and run a watch. 
Probably some of you are wearing quartz watches uh, this evening. Now, there's our puzzle, and we say, you know what? Physics can handle it. Let's say these are the physics-based explanations here, these type X explanations. Physics can handle it, so our boxes are equivalent at this point. We're not, you know, box two's not going to win in that case, but how about something like this? Okay, if you know what these are, don't say. Let me just see a quick show of hands. Who thinks that these are natural objects? I see one. All right, it looks like pretty much everybody else thinks they're artificial. They kind of look like beautiful little glassy buttons, don't they? Like someone might have turned them on a lathe. I mean, they have this wonderful beveled edge here, this symmetry. If I found one of those in a field, just walking along and picked it up, I'd say, who made this? I mean, it looks like a little glass button. In fact, these are called tektites, and the current best explanation for their origin is they're caused naturally by a meteoritic impact. So this picture here shows a meteorite colliding with the Earth's surface, and it creates this intensely hot molten soup, some of which splashes out high up into the air as a molten glass sphere. Okay, now as that molten sphere is arcing through the air, it begins to cool, and as it's falling, the air pushes up against the bottom, and you get that nice beveled edge forming. So that when it hits the ground and has cooled off, you get this little funny button shape. Right? You find these in Australia, near meteoritic impact sites. Okay, suppose we find these, and we don't know this physical story that was worked out by research. We might have a debate about whether they were natural or artificial. In fact, when you look at the geological literature in the 19th century when they were discovered, there was a debate for many decades, are tektites caused by intelligence or are they caused by physics? Right now, the current best explanation is they're caused by physics, but you can't even have that debate if you don't have intelligence as a live possibility in your toolkit. So if we go back here and put that in, now we have a real puzzle. Who recognizes what that is? Anybody study anthropology, physical anthropology? I see a hand here. Exactly right. It's a hand axe made from flint. And if you saw this from the edge, it would have this beautiful beveled shape and it would fit very comfortably balanced in your hand and you could use it to cut hide or to cut bone or muscle. It's a Stone Age tool. Now, if I were out walking in a field, I'm not trained paleoanthropology. I don't recognize artifacts readily, but someone who is might grab me by the arm and say, you know what, you just stepped over something that's very valuable. That's a Stone Age hand axe, and now I'm going to put it in my collection because you walked right by. The point is, this object would not exist in nature without intelligence. So in this case, science needs that notion of a mind to understand something that we would discover in a field, and physics won't do it. Physics won't do it for you. And in a case like this, it's obvious. Pigment depicting a beautiful Italian woman of the Renaissance will never arrange itself on board. You need the genius of Leonardo to do that. So here, physics is going to lose without really any argument at all. We need intelligence to understand what it is that human beings make. So here's our toolkit, and this is what I would advocate for any scientist, and I would say, you know what, I don't care what else you believe about the world. You need to let the evidence of the world surprise you. You need to have this notion of intelligence in your explanatory toolkit because 
After all, there may be things in the world that require it. And my skeptic says, all right, all right, all right. All right, Paul, okay. Nobody doubts these examples. They all involve human intelligence. All right, so let's turn up the philosophical temperature. Let's grab that temperature knob on the philosophical oven and crank it around to broil. This is Jill Tarter, plus two other people whose names I don't know, but I want you to focus on this woman here in the foreground. At the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico, I don't know if you, any of you have ever been there, but there's a very large radio telescope built into a natural depression in the mountains in Puerto Rico. And she's in the computer room, and it's 3 a.m. <laughs> okay, so this is my attitude of being up at 3 a.m. I would have been asleep for about five hours at that point. What is she and these other scientists, what are they doing? They're testing software. They're testing software that does pattern detection. And it's interesting here, she's a radio astronomer. She's actually the real-life model for the Jodie Foster character in the movie Contact. She says in the caption, you can't read it, but I'll tell you, she says, it would be nice if they sent something obvious, like the digits of pi. Okay? So, why would pi be obvious? You know what pi is, if you've had high school geometry, or even middle school geometry. It's the ratio between the circumference of a circle and its diameter. They're the first 500 digits. You know, there are web pages where you can go and put in your phone number, and it will tell you where your phone number is in the decimal expansion of pi. But here's what you can't do, at least not yet. You can't put your phone number plus your area code. So your phone number is seven digits long, and it's in there. I used to know where mine was. It's like about 10 million in. But if you put your area code in front, that string of 10 digits is still too long to be captured in pi. But here's the weird, really spooky thing about pi. As pi gets bigger and bigger and bigger, as more and more digits are added as it's expanding, Eventually, your full 10-digit number will be there, plus your birthday. You'll be able to put your birthday next to your phone number, and that string will be in there. In fact, lines of Shakespeare will be in there. It's a very weird number. As it gets bigger and bigger, more patterns pop up in pi. In any case, you would not need to see very much of this coming in in a radio telescope, and you could open the champagne. It doesn't matter who sent it. And you know what? We'll never get out there to meet them because it takes so long to travel through space that we'll never get there to meet them. But if you saw that coming in on a radio telescope, you could be very excited because mathematical objects like pi are produced by minds, not by natural causes. Of course, they would also be able to have to manipulate the electromagnetic spectrum to produce a powerful signal. But Jill Tarter, who actually is an atheist in personal life, her whole research program depends on being able to say, if I see something like this coming in, in a radio telescope, I know that there's a mind like mine, in some sense like mine, out there elsewhere in the universe. So if we put pi in there, at least part of it, Jill Tarter says, I can rule out physics. Mathematical objects like prime numbers, in the movie Contact, it's a series of prime numbers. Those are produced by intellect, not by physics. All right, so you might say, well, you know what, I'm still, the skeptic says, you know what, I, I can still bend enough to allow for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But what you're talking about, Paul, is not pi coming in, in a radio telescope. 
What you're talking about is biology. You're saying that the DNA in living things indicates an intelligent cause, and that really pushes my envelope. So they'll say, I can handle Jill Tarter, I can handle Stonehenge, I can handle insurance fraud, I can handle all the examples you give me because they only implicate you know, causes like us, either members of our species, Homo sapiens, or an alien somewhere in, in the universe. But they say, I can't handle that. Isn't that gorgeous? That is a multi-protein complex called a chaperone that is a nursery for baby proteins. In this central chamber here, this very large complex allows newly formed proteins to fold properly so they'll function once they're released into the cell. I always thought this would make a nice stained glass window. You know, after all, God made it. It's gorgeous, you know. That's a protein that would never form on the early earth from its pieces. And I would say that exists because of intelligent design. Or the panda, or Richard Dawkins. These are biological objects. And if they had an intelligent cause, it was certainly not an alien. It was probably something very much like God himself. So at this point, the skeptic says, you know what, you've pushed me too far. You've pushed me too far. I can accept design here, but these objects, if they had a designer, now you're violating the rules of science. All right, let's think about those rules, so-called rules, and what limits they may put on our freedom as human beings to get to the truth. Now, I talked about butterflies yesterday. I want to give you one example of actually... It looks like a fairly simple design, but really it's very elegant and sophisticated. When a monarch caterpillar attaches itself to a, like a twig to form a chrysalis, it embeds a structure called the cremaster here at its hind end in a little silk pad. You see that little white dot there? It deposits that silk pad and then it puts its cremaster in tightly so that it can hang there for a week to form a butterfly in the chrysalis stage. Now, we can zoom in on that. Here's a scanning electron micrograph made in Southern California. In fact, I'm going to move it so you can really see. Notice that there are little hooks here in the cremaster that entangle with the threads in the silk pad, like natural Velcro. Okay, so the hook is coming up. It goes into the silk pad and entangles very tightly. If you tug on a monarch chrysalis that's hanging from that silk pad, you can't really pull it free. It's so tightly embedded. Now think about this from the perspective of evolution. That is, from some undirected physical cause bringing this about. What would be the point of having these little hooks if you didn't have the behavior already built in to the caterpillar to make that silk pad and to deposit it there? But what would be the point of having the silk pad if you didn't have the little hooks? You can see that even this fairly simple design, this natural Velcro, requires multiple independent parts to function at all. You need the behavior, you need to be able to make the silk, but especially what you need are these little hooks to entangle. This is an example of biological design where I look at the system and I see I need this part, this part, this part, and this part, all of them present at the same time for function. What can do that? What kind of cause can do that? There's a really good view of it, where you can really make out these hook shapes and the silk threads. What kind of cause can bring that about? Aim at a distant functional target, which is what we do 
We as designers, we do that all the time. Take this laser pointer. You know, when I was a kid, these didn't exist. Lasers were big tabletop things. They were very clumsy and hard to manage. But someone said, you know what would be great? I give lectures all the time. It would be great to have a little device that I could hold in my hand that could make a bright green dot on a screen to show people what I'm talking about. What would I need? Well, I would need a little chassis to hold it. I'd need the laser unit itself. I'd need a power supply and a button and maybe a clip to put it in my pocket and so forth. In other words, the designer says, I need this part, this part, this part, and I'll bring them all together to realize a distant functional goal. That's what designers do. And they use modules, and they have discontinuities between different systems because this system's going to do this job, this system's going to do this job. When you see these features in a complicated system, you can be pretty sure that a designer was acting. Something with a mind. So my re rejoinder to the skeptic is to say, why are you putting limits on what science can infer? If the evidence from biology clearly implicates an intelligent designer, why shouldn't science be free to do that? And his response, and I get this all the time, even from Christians, is to say, you're just jamming God into an open mystery. You're putting God into a mystery where science needs to solve it. Well, not every question we put to nature is going to be answered as we would like. So I want to take a few minutes to talk about this so-called God of the gaps objection. Because I think it's really misconstrued. All right, little thought experiment. It's about 50 years from now, and I'm still alive. I'd be quite elderly, but I'm still alive. And I have a nephew who's working on Mars. Okay, there are tens of thousands of people in labs up there, and I'm bored. So I pick up my, whatever the equivalent of a cell phone is, 50 years from now, and I punch in his number. There I am on Earth. He's up there. And I want to chat with him. Just the way that you and I, right now in this room, could have a conversation in real time. I say something, you hear me, you answer back. So my research problem is, how can I have a conversation in real time with somebody on Mars? Now that's a syntactically correct grammatical English sentence. You know what it means. I'm posing a problem, a research problem. And those of you who have studied physics know there's a problem here with my problem, with my research. Is it ever going to be possible to have a conversation in real time with anybody on Mars? Why not? I mean, we can form the question, right? I want to get a solution to this question that I've asked about nature. Why can't we get the answer? There's a speed limit. At best, it'll be a six-minute round trip. So I punch in his number. Takes a, Mars is as close as it gets to the Earth in the fall. It's about 35 million miles away. It takes a while to get up there. His phone rings, he picks it up, he hears me say, hey, how's it going? He says, I'm doing great. It's a cold day on Mars, but I'm doing great. Over three minutes back. It doesn't matter that I can form the question and put it to nature. If nature herself doesn't operate that way, there's going to be no knowledge coming back because I'm not listening to what she's telling me about herself. So if my question that I'm putting to nature is, for instance, how did life come to be naturally without the action of intelligence, when in fact intelligence was involved in life coming to be, I'm putting a question to nature for which there will not be an answer. Not every question we put to nature will be answered as we like. And I think right now in science, under the philosophical naturalist framework, lots of questions are being put to nature that don't have answers. 
And when you have a case like that, the rational thing to do is not to keep asking the question, it's to change the question. So when someone says, well, it's a god of the gaps to say that intelligent design was involved in the origin of life, I say, but what if that's true? What if that's what actually happened? Then that should be the foundation of our research going forward. So I look at this situation and I say, there's no difference logically between an inference to intelligence here and an inference to intelligence here. The only difference is the kind of cause implicated. And the fact that many people don't like the possibility, I had to put it this bluntly, don't like the possibility that there's an intelligence of a transcendent nature that made life. But that's a very different question. This rule, which is widely adopted in science, here promulgated by the National Academy, is a bad rule because it tailors reality before reality has a chance to speak for itself. This verb, must, that's an imperative. What that said, I used to say that to my daughters in middle school when they would, wanted to go to the mall and their room was untidy or their homework wasn't done. They didn't have a choice, right? You must clean your room before you go to the mall. And to drive the point home, the National Academy has this logical modifier here only that says you pop the lid on your toolbox of explanation, it's going to be only natural causes. Well, I have one final thought experiment. And it comes from a friend, Elliot Sober, at the University of Wisconsin, who is probably the wisest critic of intelligent design currently publishing. If you want to read good, challenging papers that deal with intelligent design from the perspective of a thoughtful critic, go to his webpage, and he has a whole section of papers that he's written that you can download freely. What I love about Eliot is he's a challenging critic, but he never resorts to name-calling, and he takes these ideas very seriously. When I was a student, before I met him, I read one of his books, and he said, you know, in science, we're looking for the causes, and it's like looking for a buried treasure. Well, it struck me that you could build a metaphor with that, and I have to tell you something funny. This is the first time I've ever given this metaphor on an actual island. <laughs> All these presentations where I've given this example have been over there on the continent, and it doesn't really have the same impact. We're on Oahu. This is a bona fide island. So, you, you know, I feel great about that for some weird reason. <laughs> Here's my island, okay? Kind of looks like it could be one of the Hawaiian islands. And our question is, what caused X? Some puzzle that we want to understand. And let's say that the answer for X is down there, and it was intelligent cause some mind acted. And if we had a treasure map, it would tell us, go down there and dig, and you'll get the answer. Now, in science, we don't have treasure maps. That's the whole point of doing science. You have to make the discovery. You have to go out and look and do the hard work. But remember, if we knew, that's where the answer would be, down there at that southern tip, and it's intelligent causation. Now, what does this rule do to our search? This rule that the National Academy wants you to accept. What it does is it makes a no-dig zone. You can't go down there. Now you are doomed to frustration in your life as a scientist or just as a curious human being because what's going to happen is you're going to dig on the rest of the island and you're never going to find the answer to your question because you've put it out of reach before the evidence has a chance to speak for itself. People, that is the absolutely worst philosophy of science to have because you put a screen between yourself and nature. God could have put a barcode in every living thing, right in the DNA. 
God incorporated year zero, patent pending, pay attention, you know, I did this. And it wouldn't matter. If you've put intelligent causation out of reach before the evidence has a chance to speak, you're harming science. But notice, if you allow for intelligence, the rest of the island is still there open for discovery. You don't take anything away from science by saying, we're going to allow for the possibility of mind as a cause if the evidence calls for that. Once I can get a scientist to see that he doesn't lose anything by allowing for the possibility of design, the rest of the island is still there to be searched, then his curiosity takes over and he says, well, you know, I don't know if I believe in God or not, but this is a live possibility and I want to consider it. So if you can present to a skeptic his own intellectual freedom and say, don't give away anything. I'm giving you something you may need. You're not going to lose it. Don't tailor reality before it has a chance to speak for itself. You're halfway there. All right, thanks. This concludes Dr. Paul Nelson's message entitled, Setting Science Free from Materialism. If you would like to hear this study in its entirety, along with all the seminars from this past Hawaii Apologetics Conference, log on at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetics Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by the show, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us again next week as Pat and his friends continue to present reasons for faith and hope in Christ. Evidence and Answers Radio Show is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next week here on the radio or on the web for more evidence and answers.